Hey, everybody. This is George Edelman. Have you ever heard of something called rights of nature? This is a really interesting idea, and my guests today made a documentary about it. So you're going to find out all kinds of things about the rights nature itself has while you listen to these two talk about making their doc, but you're also going to hear a lot about making docs. They were journalists, became filmmakers. They used a lot of cool stuff. They worked with Mark Ruffalo, and by cool stuff, I mean gear. And this documentary is uh, pretty unique and pretty groundbreaking. Um, it's won a number of awards. It's called The Invisible Hand. And I'm excited for you to hear all about it and about Josh Pribionic and Melissa Troutman, who made the doc together. So here we go. The first thing I need to ask before we even talk really about the film itself is the rights to nature or nature's rights as a concept. Can you both just explain this to me in the audience? Because this feels, and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of core to the, the piece and the mission here. I mean, from my perspective with rights of nature, the way it gets understood is it's this new Western legal paradigm, which allows for your natural environment for resources like water or rivers or even food in some cases like uh, wild rice to have personhood in the court so that they're able to make their case uh, on behalf of that ecosystem against a corporation um, or to actually sue a corporation uh, if they need to and if they feel that they're being threatened. So it's a, it's a revolutionary concept, uh, much akin to the development of human rights. And just as the development of human rights, there are people everywhere trying to stop it. And mostly large uh, corporations doing everything that they can, from the American Petroleum Institute um, to your big PR players with BP and more, uh, to prevent these laws from being passed. And the flip side of it, too, is that this is also not just a legal framework, but also um, a belief system. So, you know, you're talking about something that's inalienable, um, that's outside of just the courts themselves. So technically, they exist right now. They're just not being recognized in the courts. Yeah, they, they exist now. I mean, Mother Nature and her laws <laughs> are the foundation of all life on the planet. Without abiding by the laws of nature, we fail as a species. So m nature's laws are kind of the supreme laws. They are the fundamental truths that human law can cannot ignore, except we have. The laws of nature, which is being advocated for through the rights of nature, does not exist in our legal framework right now in our current structure of law in the United States and in many other countries, nature is defined as property. It is not a living thing that requires interconnectedness um, to persist and stewardship to persist. Um, and so the rights of nature movement is an attempt to take to put this truth in, into Western structure of law so that we stop making the grave error that is 
basing our society on legal structures that perpetuate the harm done to nature and all of the people who live there, of course, too. This includes human rights as well. So my mind goes off in a million directions. I'm sure a lot of people's do because this is such a big idea. So does it mean a plot of land, a single tree, a river, all of it? (laughs) How does it defend itself? How does it get defended? Who decides what it wants? There's so much there. Let's go back. Before we get into the philosophical (laughs) elements, let's go back to the film for, for a second. And just say this is this is a massive concept. This is a tough film to make, obviously, because you want to dip your toe into this water. Sorry, pun intended. <laughs> to have so many people come after you, really, and just in power, and say like, we don't even want anybody to talk about this ever, right? <laughs> like, this isn't an idea that it, that that some people want to have put out there in any form. Where do you get involved as filmmakers? You know, you have to understand that as filmmakers. Melissa and myself are also investigative journalists. We run the nonprofit Public Herald, and we take on very, very difficult stories about the oil and gas industry and people who are left asking the question, um, what are we supposed to do? And with our first few films, that was something that we couldn't answer clearly, but it became more and more possible as fracking developed across this country and others that communities were looking for alternatives. And one of those alternatives that got put on their table was the rights of nature to have their ecosystem fight the fracking industry in order to ban it locally. So we are then given this opportunity, you know, following this story being kind of the lead out of all the news organizations on this, on this issue and some of the fracking stories to be able to turn our cameras on and document how a community goes from being mostly a group that votes for Trump to a community that's going to pass a rights of nature bill and change the direction of other communities across the world. Um, So that was really um, extraordinary for us as filmmakers. And I think the first thing that we have to do while we're doing that is to just make sure that we're not interjecting ourselves into that story. So a lot of it was, even though Melissa and I had, a lot of knowledge and experience about rights of nature. It was us taking a big step back and just letting this thing happen organically. And that's why I think the film was a, a six year production um, because we, we were making sure we documented the reality of it rather than um, us kind of introducing new concepts and questions, which could have made it a lot easier to, to finish the film sooner. I guess that's sort of part of your question. <laughs> the other part is... Yeah, that's part of... I mean, this, that question was so big and rambly. I apologize. Point of the question in there was just, how how did you get to the filmmaking part of this? We talked about the idea, and I want to get to the, the where the film starts, but you talked about being journalists. Um, Melissa, can you tell me where it became, where it goes from this? We talked about the idea, but where do you become people making this film? So as journalists, we were focused predominantly on the water contamination from fracking development in Appalachia, and which became then a five-year investigation unearthing the cover-up of that water contamination, and which later led to um, the Pennsylvania Attorney General conducting 
their own investigation, which found essentially the same things we did a couple years prior anyway. It was after years of watching people be poisoned and land be poisoned under a regime that swept it under the rug, even though there was tons of evidence. I mean, right there on the page in black and white on hundreds and thousands of documents showing that this was happening, nothing was being done. And so that's what Josh was referring to when he said, you know, people keep asking, what do we do? What do we do? We, we go to the people who are supposed to be protecting us, and they are not. Not only are they not protecting us by upholding the law, or so we think not upholding the law, and I'll get to that in a second, but they're covering it up. They're telling us we're crazy. And covering these stories where people get to that very helpless, hopeless place we found one community, Grant Township in Indiana County, Pennsylvania, who had decided to do something brand new to us. Well, not brand new to us, but brand new to communities in Pennsylvania. It's the first time that we saw somebody use rights of nature and community rights in Pennsylvania specifically to fight the fracking industry. And so This community, of course, stood out to us and we just turned on the cameras. Like Josh said, it was really organic. Long story short, it was through our coverage of the cover-up of water contamination and the collusion between regulators and industry um, at the expense of people and the environment. And what ended up happening is that we we became able to show in real time how people are flipping the hierarchy of power inside of their communities. Instead of going outside and saying, hey, please protect us, they're, they're taking that power back and doing so through the, this movement. So just to add that to Melissa's talks about it being organic. And so you can, you can turn your camera on and kind of just follow the group that you're with. But because we've had such a long history with investigative journalism, we knew where to go. So it really helped us to be like, okay, well, we need to be at at this particular hearing at this day, and we know what's going to happen here. So let's put the cameras here, here, and here. So Standing Rock is happening. We know how significant this is going to be for the future of the environmental fight and for rights of nature. So we need to be there, and we need to document that. Um, so just having you know, a chance from our experiences to know how to make the right decisions led to a really difficult film in terms of threading all these stories together. Um, But in the end, a very, very fulfilling film for us um, that we actually did it and it works (laughs) and it's, it's comprehensive. So it's awesome. And six years. So can you tell me why it took six years? What took six years and what the, what made it finished? Was it part of needing to see the full thing play out to a certain end or was it partly a production, pre-production, post-production, like soup to nuts thing where there were things that kind of changed or, or impacted your ability to say, okay, now we're done. Um, so my curiosity is like, where did the six years, uh, what were the factors that determined the length? And if they were partly like, oh, now we feel like this is finished. You know, now we know the whole, the story we want to tell is complete because I imagine in some ways the story, the the story of what this is, is ongoing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is, I mean, the rights of nature movement is 
is like having its coming out of the garage moment. If we want to compare it to, you know, Steve Jobs and bringing, you know, Apple into the world. A couple of things. One is that this is, was the natural progression of the story. Things kept happening. Twists kept appearing in the journey. And this story is actually still ongoing and will continue. Grant Township, one of the communities featured in the film, is still fighting in court. They just had the corporation that wants to dump toxic radioactive waste in their community, which is banned in their local law. And they just had that corporation sue them in court, basically for squashing the corporation's rights to inject poisons near their drinking water supplies. So there was that. But also, Joshua and I run Public Herald, like he mentioned, and we are a very small group of folks. And we also were completing a massive investigation of the cover-up of water contamination in Pennsylvania. So we were juggling the two at the same time. To put Melissa's, you know, to put a weight on what Melissa said, that that investigation has led to um, a criminal investigation by the attorney general into the fracking industry and into state regulators. So that's how important it was for us to make sure that that story was also published in addition to this film. But we we couldn't have finished the film any sooner. If we did, it would have been very incomplete and not what we wanted at all. I mean, to, to put it into perspective from our first film, our first film on fracking was, was finished in 18 months. Uh, and that was such an enormous issue and it being our first film, very difficult. Um, but we were able to complete it in 18 months because the story was like, there it just needed to be put on screen you know i see it was contained yeah and we were it was easier for us to say is water contamination happening yes how much of it (laughs) how much is out there you know that kind of thing so it was very yeah that that makes sense to me that's kind of what i was thinking with invisible hand it's like as i said at the open when we were talking about this idea of of rights of nature and how many directions it goes in and then you said how many threads you had to weave and then you say six years. And then as Melissa's, you say, the story is ongoing. And my mind just goes to how do you know, even at the six years, how did you know you were like, okay, I think we've closed it here. Like We knew, we knew. So <laughs> we, had a, we had a huge roadblock. There was like this thing in the room that we could not tear down. It was so difficult. We kept having, you know, editing session after editing session and meeting. Can you tell me what it is without spoiling the Yeah, the I can tell you. Experience. So we, Okay. There was a there was a whiteness to the film all of us were uncomfortable with. Um, it was a lot of ah. white people doing things, basically in the spirit of the indigenous legacy of this country. You know, the idea of protecting nature and having a relationship with it, and that that indigenous voice and uh, that story was not represented in the film. And when we tried to do it, when we tried to, for instance, interview, I think it was the Blackfeet and the Ho-Chunk um, about the rights of nature story in 2014, it ha- that Western idea had not been introduced into their communities and into their culture. So even though their culture has is built entirely around something like the rights of nature, meaning their language is tied to the kind of language yeah. you want from rights of nature, that particular term and giving nature personhood in the court is a foreign concept. So we couldn't have so, that conversation. So interesting. <laughs> and we were trying to be like, yeah, we're going to we're going to interview the elder and the elder's going to be like put this, 
you know, piece in the film and, and merge these stories. And, and then we would be like, wait, they're <laughs> like, we're idiots. They, they don't have the, this is a white term. This is a white thing. And we're, so we're, so it became really frustrating. And in the end, what happened was we were like, we're going about this the wrong way. We need to hear their story and with respect to their prophecy, um, specifically from the Seneca nation of Indians. And then Melissa had the great idea. Let's go interview Dega, you know, and get the prophecy and see how that works. And it worked perfectly. So once he tells the peacemaker's story, which is the Haudenosaunee prophecy, now we have this amazing, surreal narrative coming from an indigenous voice that all of us know about, but we never get to hear merging between this white culture and coming through capitalism, coming out of capitalism. Um, and it really, really helps to finalize the film and and give it the kind of uh, structure that it was missing and that we were desperately looking for that we luckily finally found on the filmmaking side philosophically there's the there's the documentarian or the news reporter the journalist who is trying to find the piece that fits what they want it to be in the reality right do you guys follow what i'm saying there that it's like you are trying to say, like, I, I'm turning on the cameras representing reality, but I need this piece of the reality for it to be truly representative. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely happens. And that right. But it's tricky, right? Because for, you know, no film school and, and we want to talk to people who might consider making a documentary. You never you never turn on the camera, get completely out of the way and then stop thinking, oh, you know what? I should also point the camera over there, too, to tell the story completely. Right. You want to be involved in some way of telling that story or crafting what perspectives are shared. Yeah. Is that kind of what happened? That's kind of it. I mean, there's, there's an antithesis to capitalism, right? Rights of nature, which is for me, you know, by sh calling the film invisible hand, what we're saying is that this construct, this theory of the invisible hand, which was introduced by Adam Smith, which was a, a completely, you know, human anthropocentric idea is now changing based on what you see in this film, because decisions are no longer being made in the marketplace from man's pursuit of profit. Decisions are actually being made based on nature and nature's restrictions to the profit that you can make because you don't have unlimited resources anymore because capitalism has annihilated them. So it's this crazy irony where for us in the film, you know, capitalism has created its own Achilles heel through rights of nature. And in the backside of that, like the understory that's playing, you know, is the indigenous community who's always said, always said that this was true and that this, this was going to happen and they've prophesized about it. So that was, it was, that was perfect to kind of, yeah, make what seems like a child's, you know, a children's story, um, become kind of like the story of a modern world. Um, which is really cool when you, when you get to see it. Story, would he? I'm you lost me there, Josh. <laughs> metaphor. I think you you mean like in the sense of metaphor, like often yeah, like when prophecy. That's a metaphor, right? Is that yeah. correct? They, they you're like warning your kids about and teaching your kids about. We are the younger sibling, aren't we? Um, as Dega, yeah, yeah we're, we're little, little brother, brother, little sister. Yeah, we at Public Herald have always ascribed uh, to the reality that whether you're making a, a documentary or you're creating a, an investigative report, there's no such thing as objectivity. It is 
an aspiration to be as objective and holistic as possible and as um, inclusive as possible and to and to share the stories of the people most affected um, even if they especially when they are not the ones that are in the room i i love that i i love the ownership of that inability to be truly objective sort of like sometimes you may have to choose the facts in order to show all the facts yeah i challenge any <laughs> i challenge like- everyone listening to find one media outlet one newspaper one film that is complete that is entirely objective and i you know it's it's not something i truly believe in i am like we aspire to it there's a scholar art pearl in the film and he says that democracy is impossible the way that infinity in math is impossible but but we still use it as a marker and we still aspire to it and I think that objectivity in this work is the same. We can get out of the way. The work comes through us, our eyes, our ears, our hands, and the thing and the places that we choose to put them. That is a subjective choice in, in ways that we don't even fully grasp sometimes. Yeah, well said. I, I want to go back again to talking about something you mentioned earlier, Melissa, which was nature has its own laws, sort of, that its rules and laws predate, pre-exist, and supersede the small ones we've created in our own little constructs. Is that kind of what you were saying earlier? Yeah, exactly. And so this, yeah, tell me about how this sort of attempt, this, this is an attempt to build laws that reflect, in our little construct, the bigger ones that you mentioned or referenced. So... Let's use an example. A fundamental truth in the laws of nature is the law of reciprocity, There's, which gets into the fact that every ecosystem has a carrying capacity for the species that live in that ecosystem. And where a particular species outgrows the carrying capacity of that ecosystem to sustain it, the species will collapse and take others with it um, at times. And that is just the natural balancing force of nature that is contained in the physical laws of nature. If you use all the resources, there will be none left and you will starve. <laughs> you know, So that, that's very much how it works. It's really that simple. It's that fundamental. Those fundamental truths, however, are missing from our decision-making processes in our society. So when we develop land, when we do land development and um, we consume water resources, we aren't starting those projects based on fundamental truths, that there's only so much. And with the, the rate of our current population growth, we have to factor in over time the, the, the sustainable use of this resource. We don't do that. <laughs> we, and, yes. and, you know, and, but, but people perceive that we do because we have things called mm-hmm. environmental laws and environmental regulations. And so the lay person believes that we, well, we are managing that that reality, that relationship with um, what we call natural resources instead of nature, which is a living being. 
um, a living thing and living entity. And so what the rights of nature is doing, is attempting to do, is to put a new lens on our brain <laughs> and our legal system, a lens that like when we look through is a much clearer and accurate and realistic representation of the world we're really living in. We live in a world where nature is a, an interconnected ecosystem of living things, all of which depend on each other. And that reality needs to be inserted into our decision-making processes, which are outlined in our legal system. Those are the rules we use to live and we need to be living by the rules that nature sets to begin with, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, yeah, that you said so much, but I, but I feel like that illuminates so much because it's sort of like you're saying this idea is to protect the ability to use these resources, not just the idea to ban the use of resources. What you're trying to say is like, it's going to come down hard regardless. Like if you, the law is going to come and it's going to come harshly. So can we self-regulate in a way that reflects that harsh reality so we don't, there was a recent quote about global warming or climate crisis that was like, we're going to have to spend this money now anyway. It's more expensive if we don't spend it the right way. Do you guys know what I'm talking about there? Sure, yeah. That I feel like you're sort of part of it. Like we're going to suffer if we don't do it. It's an attempt to do it intelligently. And gracefully. Right? Mark, Safely, yeah. Mark, gracefully. Mark made a really good point during the premiere after, um, in the discussion after our premiere. And Mark said, you know, we we're going to re we're required to do this regardless. So let's try to do it gracefully. Um, and and I think that's what you're getting at. Nature bats last. Yeah, Nature bats I mean, last. That... Let's not get hit over the head. Instead, instead, <laughs> let's like get in line with reality and maybe not get hit over the head. I mean, am I wrong to suggest that in a way it's trying to protect? No. That's in some a, way, not just nature, but also the people who want the resources, the absolutely. companies, the humanity that's trying to, right. That's, I think that's kind of the revolutionary, not to overuse the term, but that's the revolutionary side of, of this is that it's, it's not just a, we want to stop you from using this land. It's like a, we want to make sure that you don't die using this land. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Does that make sense? A, like we're just actually want to protect you as much as we want to protect this land. A lot of times it gets talked about with respect to, you know, we live in a competitive economy and the idea is switching to a cooperative economy uh, where the decisions that are made, you know, for instance, by farmers on growing crops in the Midwest isn't, I'm going to take out as much water from this aquifer as I want to them communicating with each other to know how much they can actually take out before they ruin their entire way of life. And I say that because that's real and that's happening there, you know, along the Ogallala aquifer, um, where they've, they've, they've had to come to a consensus with one another. Um, and that consensus is really important. And that, what that means, like if you're trying to understand how you can practice this or how you can, you know, step into this, this new idea, it, it means putting nature at the, at the center of your decision-making rather than yourself. Um, so it's a major shift or, from individualism yeah. to um, something 
much different, you know, not an anthropocentric society, but an ecocentric society. Yeah, if I may throw another quasi metaphor out there that comes to mind that might help people listening get as well. I think that it's sort of like if the idea has been people believing that through medicine they can live forever. It's just not true. You can live a long time as well as you can, but you can't avoid like, you know, the idea that you can just keep using and using the land or the resources and it can keep going that way is, is false, right? Yeah, if we had a law a law of erosion, that would be great. <laughs> right. I'll talk about that. So back to the film again and the filmmaking part of it. Um, what did you, you know, you started in 2014. Did you turn the cameras on? Did you use the same cameras the whole way through? Did you start editing at some point in like year three? Like, can you take me through the filmmaker's oh, time? Do we get to geek out and yeah, talk yeah. about gear? Is that what we're going to do? Please, please, please do. I, I mean, this is no film squad. I made you talk so much about philosophy that I'll let yeah. you talk about the nerdy stuff. Or the maybe this so, is the less nerdy stuff. I don't know. I mean, we, we've had a lot of success with the Panasonic Lumix series. So we've been, back then, you know, it was the GH4 came out. It was shooting in 4K V-Log, um, which was just amazing to look at you know, through the camera with a cine lens and then go into the editing room and edit that. And it was just, just so cool going from, you know, what we had in the, the, you know, the HD world up to 4k. And then from there we switched to um, the GH five and we started to use that to use that. And then we went to the S one and we used of course the drone. So Mavic pro two was uh, really helpful in getting, the kind of shots that we, you know, just made the film that much more enjoyable to watch, that much more beautiful. You have a beautiful visual canvas to work with, right? Because you got nature. <laughs> like yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you're in these beautiful areas. So you're capturing them and tech is evolving as you go. So you're talking about switching. We're, we're doing this camera. Then we start using this camera. How, how does it all come together? I mean, I know having watched it, but again, just for, you know, the concept of, of talking to people who haven't in general talking about your process, like putting pieces together from different cameras as you go through that. Well, I mean, that just made sure we had to all agree on an editing system. So we used FCPX um, to edit the film and, and put everything in there. And then, you know, we have raids that we're trading back and I forth. I really want to know more about that too, though. So continue, but I, tell me more about why <laughs> FCPX. That's an why interesting FCPX? Thing. Because in Premiere Pro, Pro, which I love Premiere Pro because it still has that FCP, you know, seven attitude to it. The reason that we chose F- FCPX is because the same writer, the same um, person who designed Premiere Pro designed F- FCPX. And he said that FCPX was trying to create a system if the idea of film never existed. Um, and I really liked that concept. I liked the idea that he was trying to break out of the box with that system. And of course, if you remember when it started, it was, it was terrible. Um, the interface, we're talking about final cut pro for FCP, for those who don't know if anybody listening. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was so, it was, it was just really frustrating to work with coming out of the, you know, the older system. Um, Mm -hmm. that's why a lot of us were switching to premiere pro. Um, but once, you know, once I read that guy's philosophy on it, you know, I went back to it and I put this film in there and decided we will try and make this film through this editing program. And if it, if it fails, we'll switch to Premiere Pro. Um, but 
luckily it just got better and better and better. And now it's at the point where, you know, I feel like the dream that was initially Final Cut Pro X is now kind of coming into fruition and things happen a lot faster. You know, um, it's easier to edit in that program. And once you have a hang of it, you know, your, your editing timeline is like almost cut in half in some ways, which is awesome. I have, we have had on no film school a few times that final cut pro or FCP, uh, X film editors have talked and written about why they like it. And they come under a lot of fire because a lot of filmmakers are just so into premiere having come off FCP seven. It's just become what, or even resolved sometimes, but it's, it gets a lot of flack, but I'm fascinated to hear you talk about it from the perspective of we wanted one that had nothing, no, no relationship to the idea of film. We liked that idea and it worked really well. It sounds like. Totally. Yeah. Once you, once you were able to create a workflow with your team um, in that program, it was like everything went smoothly. And this was a huge timeline. So having the smaller timeline helps, I think. <laughs> There's, Huge amount of there's, footage. There's four raids over here that control this Man. film. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's major, and they're all running through a Mac, a 2013 Mac Pro that's beefed up, um, and that's all. And it worked. You know, I mean, we didn't have it didn't crash. You know, we didn't lose everything, um, and luckily everything has uh, has worked out. So it's great. How big was your production in terms of, you know, I know you, you went a lot of different places, but how many, how much footage did you shoot? How many people were shooting? And, and then how big was your post-production? Oh, um, it's, it, it's hard to say, you know, the exact number on terabytes, um, for this, but like I said, there's, there's four raids here and, uh, you're looking at like 12 terabyte raids. Um, so there's a lot of footage in there, but when it came to people shooting, um, we had Melissa, myself, and at least, you know, three, three, four other people on camera at certain points throughout this process. Um, sometimes one or two people, uh, doing audio, you know, and that was normally through like a Marantz or Tascam field recorder hooked up to, you know, uh, road shotgun mics. Um, or if we did like for Mark's voiceover. Um, you know, we use the roadcaster and, you know, either the, the TLM one Oh three mic or, you know, the, some traditional stuff. You guys are credited. I mean, part of why I'm at, you guys are credited as producer, writer, director, editor, both of you did you both do a ton of everything? Did you, do you guys divvy up tasks in some ways? Do you have like, how does it work? How does your collaboration work across all those jobs? So I like, uh, well, how does it work on your end? I like. <laughs> does it work? First question. Does we it won't work? go there. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, it all it all works. The, the way I like to describe it to folks is that um, my hands don't touch the the editing keyboard. I'm more involved in the the writing and the editing, the scripting, um, kind of the front end side of things. Whereas Josh and our editor Andrew Giller are on the back end. And then of course, Andrew and Josh will edit and then bring it to the team. We'll all watch it together. We'll make notes and then they'll go back and put their hands on the keyboard. I don't do that part. And I'm very grateful to them that I don't have to, uh, because I think 
is it helpful to to divide that for perspectives, Josh? Do you guys both? How does yeah. that? Or is it like, man, I wish she was also editing back. <laughs> Not that I want to sow some uh, some yeah. discord. So we, I mean, for Melissa, I think we so Vimeo is helpful. We used Vimeo, um, you know, in their notes system. Which if they're listening, oh cool, interesting. If they're listening, please update please. your Vimeo notes so we can do more. <laughs> why? Why did you choose that one? There's lots of things. I'm curious. There's oh, it was just you know. You know, I think it was, we don't have time to go, you know, use something else. Let's just stick everything in Vimeo and see if that will work. And um, we made it work basically. Yeah. Um, so each person would watch, you know, the, the new cut through Vimeo, add their notes in Vimeo. And then myself or Andrew would go through those edits and then we would all come back to it again. Um, but I think the most important thing is, you know, for anybody who's trying to make something is to really sacrifice yourself and what you want because uh, most of the time what you want doesn't doesn't work and you need to change it um, yeah and and it's really helpful to get everybody else's um you know thoughts and and ideas to to help you change the film and and that could be people who work directly with you or we do test screenings so i think we did um three or four or five test screenings for this film to get audience reactions and then we changed it based on that yeah George, you hit it. I mean, the, the multiple perspectives at different times um, is very, very valuable, I think, to the creative process and the end product. Um, when everyone with, when all the brains are in the room at the same time, sometimes you can, it's, I mean, not sometimes, very often, it's really easy to go down rabbit holes of very fine-tuned, uh, from very detailed issues in in the timeline to in the narrative to like the bigger picture stuff and so to kind of have multiple eyes on it at different times i think can be really great for how the story develops and unfolds visually tell me about um as we're talking about the different people and the collaboration there's someone we haven't talked about in this much and that's mark ruffalo (laughs) how did he get involved Obviously, he provides a lot um, in different ways, but also how did he get involved and, you know, what his perspective, uh, you know, as a filmmaker, the collaboration, but also, um, yeah, the, for the fifth time, how did he get involved? <laughs> oh, there's, there's two stories that one is when we were making Triple Divide, we had a month and a half before the film was going to be released. And on one of those days, I get a voicemail. I listen to it and says, hey, this is Mark Ruffalo. I just watched the early cut of your film. I really like it. Let me know how I can get involved. <laughs> We're like, what? What the hell was that? <laughs> just like on Mark your personal voicemail? Yeah. So the way <laughs> that happened. How did he see it? Yeah. Yeah, the way that happened, I'll let Melissa tell that story. Well, that, that happened actually through um, one of our very first supporters when Public Herald was just Joshua and I and a couple hundred uh, members of the public who were donating money while we were sleeping on couches. Anyway, one of those early supporters is the late John Trallo, who, as, uh, as, as luck would have it, was also a rights of nature activist years before we knew we were going to make Invisible Hand. Anyway, John wrote a blog. Mark happened to read that blog and said, hey man, and reached out to John and said, hey man, this is amazing. 
Um, oh, by the way, the, the blog was about the fracking development in Pennsylvania. And Mark um, also comes to this work through water defense as a water defender. And um, he was reading John's blog, reached out to John and said, I really, uh, he wanted to support what John was doing and told John, if you ever need anything, let me know. Well, John, as a supporter of us and good friend, um, sent Mark our film. And that's how it happened. It was because of John. And that, I'm sure that voicemail, like beyond being confusing, became very exciting, right? And you contacted him and were like, where did it go? Like, then you start talking about the <laughs> project or like, yeah, what? Did you well, call him back or cell phone or yeah, something we were both shocked we, we called him back on his phone and we talked to him um about you know what would be the best thing to do because we were just about to release the film we we're like i don't know what you could do um and then we thought oh yeah of course you can do the, the voiceover for these parts in the film where melissa did the voiceover melissa's awesome at doing vo's um but for this there was like a lot of educational parts in triple divide about like what are what is radioactive material and fracking um, so Bruce Banner, you know, the scientist got to come out and <laughs> talk about, talk about this, uh, geeky stuff, you know, in regards to what these chemicals are and it fit really well. Cause it helped to balance between, um, you know, Mark's narration and Melissa's narration. So it wasn't just kind of one narrator the whole, the whole time. But then, so then he becomes, you know, he does narration on invisible hand, but also he's an executive producer yeah. So it's a big, it's a bigger relationship, um, and and a bigger collaboration. Absolutely, I think while our relationship just grew, you know, Mark, um, he was making films like uh, Dark Waters, Spotlight, and while he's like playing the role of an actor, digging through records, like we're also literally doing spending it. years <laughs> doing the same thing, like telling Mark about it. Um, so I think he he just had a stronger relationship with Public Herald, and when we talked to him about this rights of nature film. Um, he was all about it. He immediately got it. And he thought, you know, this is the way forward to merge all of these different um, social issues, social justice issues, environmental justice issues, indigenous rights issues, and, and try and bring them under um, one path. And so he really got behind it. And we worked with him since I think 2016, somewhere around there, 15 or 16 as an executive producer um, to get the film out. Yeah, Josh mentioned social justice and um, indigenous rights. And Mark is not just a water defender. He's very active politically and in a lot of um, social justice issues. And uh, I think that's, I mean, that's part of why the rights of nature resonates with him The and why it does with us is because when you acknowledge that nature is a living being with the right to exist, flourish, and thrive, you are honoring and acknowledging all of life. And when you do that, you, and then you automatically acknowledge and honor all people. And that's what makes rights of nature so, that's the other reason it's so amazing. It's intersectional to the extreme. I mean, it gets to the root of so many problems that we face and, um, one of the things that we are really excited about is an upcoming event we have. We're in the process of organizing a youth international screening of Invisible Hand on March 13th. 
And we've, we've started oh, cool. in, in the planning calls, in the planning meetings where we are having with youth from uh, across the country and in other countries around rights of nature, um, this is a big part of the conversation, how this movement intersects with other movements, the climate justice movement, the social justice movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, Land Back, how all of these are can intersect and, and um, create a paradigm shift, a, a full-on cultural shift, which is what we absolutely need um, in a world where we're, we, we're out of time and we have to make huge changes in a very, in, and we have to do it now. It, it has to be all hands on deck. What are the common roots? Where, where do we hit um, that uh, elevates everybody's, everybody's issues and, and lives? That's just very well said. I don't, I mean, I feel like that's a kind of a good note to end on. I just want to ask last question to round out and I appreciate you guys going over. It's been great. Do you have any advice you would give to a documentary filmmaker, somebody who wants to start making docs, sees a story in the world, um, think here's your story and thinks, how do I start getting involved in telling stories about the things that matter to me? Uh, what would you tell them or advise them? Well, on my end, I would, I would say that, you know, don't let money get in the way for this stuff. Um, there's all kinds of ways to get the equipment you need either through something like eBay or, you know, get it buying used equipment elsewhere. If there's a story in front of you, try and start to capture it rather than wait and say, well, I need to have the red Komodo in order to shoot this story. And that's just not the case. You know, if you, if you can get older, you know, good cameras, um, and, and you, and that will let you shoot the story now. Uh, absolutely go do that. Cause I know there's a lot of financial restrictions with new cameras coming out and n new standards from people. Um, but ultimately the public doesn't see those things. You know, the public, if the editing's good and the sound is good and you're shooting on good cameras, you know, the public is going to appreciate that story, uh, no matter what you do. So it's just a matter of making sure that you start shooting it and start telling it. I did not go to school for filmmaking. I never aspired to be a filmmaker. So no film school filmmaker over here. And, <laughs> um, you know, I just, I, just to echo Josh's sentiment, um, you don't have to be professionally trained. You don't have to have the good equipment. I feel like, you know, this, all of the work that Josh and I have done for me has just come from my guts. It comes from this feeling that the story must be told and a connection with the urge to tell it. And so I feel like, like that's the wellspring, you know, and if you, if you listen to your gut, you follow your nose, you'll find a way to make it happen. Yeah. I, I mean, I love that. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, that was our interview with Josh and Melissa on The Invisible Hand, the documentary. You can watch it on Amazon. It's streaming there. It may be some other places, too. Uh, just Google it and head over to the website. 
a couple other cool things going on in the world of no film school. We have interviews coming up soon with the production design team behind Mank. And these folks have worked with David Fincher on a lot of projects. So once again, we're going to get a lot of insight into the process of working with the master Fincher himself. Plus, we have a cool interview with Channing Godfrey Peoples, who made the film Miss Juneteenth from Sundance 2020, which secured distribution and is out there. And she's got some other cool stuff she's working on. And she's going to tell you all about her experience making that feature basically from the ground up with nothing behind it except for the dream which we can all relate to so check out all this stuff and more at nofilmschool.com like us on facebook follow us on twitter and uh thanks for listening